Well, if you turn with me to uh, the second uh, chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. have the outpouring of the Spirit, the gift of languages, miraculous languages. And then we have Peter with this impromptu sermon. And he's been through that and he's quoted Joel, a prophecy of Joel, and applied it to this event, or rather this event being one, uh, the, the sort of beginning of the unfolding of Joel's prophecy. Acts 2.22 then. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. So a very short reading there. So, the The Son of God, when he embarked on his mission as a Messiah in this world, he showed it at, from the outset he showed his submission, his submission to God, the, the Father. We might even say that we might even say that uh, even now he is in some way uh, still in a state of uh, submission as he carries out the Father's will till the end of time. There's nevertheless an equality, an equality within the Trinity, which you see in the scriptures. But the Bible pictures the Father as having this oversight of all the aspects of Jesus' mission. His entrance into the world, his life, his, uh, the whole mission, even up to his death and even his resurrection and ascension, all overseen by God the Father. So, today, we have just three verses, and I have just three things. I have three ways in which God was at work through Christ. Uh, hence the title, uh, The Purpose of God in Christ. So the first point is, and you will see, you will see the, the, the name God mentioned three times in those three verses. And it's the first one. Uh, that we see tells us that God commended Christ God commended him to the world so we see God's stamp of approval uh, at different stages in the life of Christ when we think uh, at this time of the year of the birth uh, the birth of Jesus Christ I, I said to you that that the world likes this, they just don't like what comes after it so much. 
They're not so much interested in the ministry, the atonement, and so on. But they love the little baby Jesus and they love, they love the whole nativity thing. Everyone's into this. And what's interesting is that even in the scriptures, the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth into this world, his, his birth, was surrounded by a huge fanfare. Activity in the heavens and on the earth to introduce this, this child, this special child. In fact, that level of celebration, if you like, or that level of uh, phenomena was not seen again until Jesus died and the, the sky went black and there was an earthquake and so on. And so clearly we see the whole of Jesus' life bracketed by these two greater uh, events. But certainly, uh, although the birth was just a means to an end, the baby Jesus, if he stayed as a baby, is, is pointless and useless to us. It was a means to an end, yet it was worthy of being uh, celebrated, if you like, by God. And in doing that, he, he really commended Christ to the world. It's interesting that the ministry of Jesus took up about maybe less than 10% of his whole life. So we can imagine the saviour of the world living in obscurity for about 90% of his, of his life on this earth. And then at the, at the uh, ripe age of about 30, we see him embark on his ministry. And the first things first, he gets baptised. And what happens? The Father announces from heaven in an audible voice, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son, God says. And so on his ministry goes. And throughout his ministry, we see Jesus doing spectacular things. And they are at the same time ascribed to Jesus. He's the one doing them. They're also ascribed to God as a whole, if you like. The power of God did this. We see that in healing, don't we? We see... We see Jesus healing, for example, as, as hundreds. But we see, for example, a man had a withered hand, a withered hand. So I don't know exactly what a withered hand looks like, but I can imagine because it was little and shriveled up somehow. You like I've seen hands like that. And Jesus restored that to a fully functioning hand. And you think about what's involved in that tiny miracle. Jesus had to regenerate cells from scratch. An act of creation, you might want to call this. We also see Jesus uh, involved in exorcism. Again, many examples, but this one notable one. There's a man and a, a crowd of what number, I don't know. A crowd of demons seem to have clung to this man. And he was, well, completely under the influence of these demonic uh, entities. And, well, Jesus just banished them. Jesus told them exactly where to go. And they migrated and into a herd of animals, which promptly, <laughs> who promptly then killed themselves by throwing themselves in a river. Make of that what you will. Just the, the violence of the demons, I suppose. The Lord did that. He even raised someone from the dead. Someone who'd been dead for four days, unmistakably dead, 
Jesus reintroduced the, the Spirit of God, if you like, back into him and revived him. And there he was, standing again, alive. And neither, was, neither were all these uh, signs and wonders restricted to people. It was the elements as well. Jesus showed he, he had as much power over the elements as he did the human body. For example, when there was a storm and Jesus just spoke some words, as if the wind and the waves could hear him, he said, be, be still, peace, be, be at peace, be still. And it all died down. There's power over the elements. And it is said then that this is the power of God displayed. He's not to be, Jesus is not to be regarded in isolation. He represents the whole Godhead, if you like. It says here in John uh, 3, verse 2. in verse 2 this is Nicodemus about Nicodemus it says this man came to Jesus by night and said to him Rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him so I'm not saying Nicodemus was a believer he was an inquirer and he's saying us Jews, well, the ones who are at least honest, recognise that no one can do this. No one can do what you've done unless it was of God. So here's God commending Christ then. And apart from commending him, God does something then which is quite surprising. God delivers Christ up to death. And so the same God who commended his own son, recommended him as the Lord, someone to be trusted, someone to have faith in. God had already purposed that he was going to arrange the delivering of his own son to be killed. suppose the question then is, well, who caused Jesus' death? Maybe, if I, maybe if, I, if I took some answers from you now, I would get a range of answers. Some of you will say, well, the Jews in Jerusalem killed him because, well, Peter says so. Peter says, you killed him. So some of you might say, well, it, the, the, we can say the Jerusalem Jews caused the death of Christ. We note though that there were visiting Jews, visiting Jews from other countries. Now, if they've travelled, um, if they've travelled uh, an awfully long way, they live hundreds or thousands of miles away, uh, it might seem a bit unfair for Peter to say to all of them, you killed him. So, perhaps Peter was just hoping that those who did kill him would hear it and it would register 
and the others would say, I don't know what you mean, I wasn't here. It may be that, maybe Peter was blaming all of them, because all those Jews, all those Orthodox Jews belonged to a body of people who, in its entirety, almost had rejected their own Messiah. It could be that. So you might argue that the, well, the visitors uh, killed him as well. They were, they were guilty. What about the Romans? The Romans were the ones who processed him. The Romans were the ones who did the arrest, the faulty trial, made him walk all the way to the site of execution. The Romans set up the execution, they carried it out, and they made sure he was dead. And in fact, the scriptures do say that Gentiles are included in that list of people to be blamed. You might recall in Psalm 2, it says that it says that the kings of the earth, or the leaders of the earth, the, the Gentiles in other words, they, they got together and they plotted against the Lord and against his anointed. That was back in the Psalms. So we might say the Gentiles uh, are to blame, or, or rather they caused Jesus' death. Listen to what it says in Luke uh, 22 and verse 32. Luke 22 and verse 22, beg your pardon. Luke 22 and verse 22. This is curious. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, my God, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So we have two things in that verse. The betrayal of Christ was arranged by God, carried out by Judas. And Judas is held to be guilty for doing that. He did it willingly. God did not force him to betray Jesus. He did it willingly through agreed for money. So there you go, we have all these different answers. Who caused, who caused Jesus' death? Well, it was those people over there, and those people, and those people. But ultimately, above all that, it was God who was behind it all. God was behind all of it. And you may be, may be caused to, re, to remember that episode with uh, Joseph in Genesis. So Joseph, he's been, you know, handed over into slavery by his own brothers. Yeah, he ends up being promoted in Egypt to the, oh, the prime minister, if you like. The brothers go for food. There's a meeting. They realise, well, it's revealed to them, that this man ruling over Egypt is their brother. And of course, they're devastated and racked with guilt. And Joseph kindly looks at them and says, okay, just don't don't worry too much. You did, you did mean it for evil. You, you did hand me over because you were evil. He doesn't hold that against him. He says, you, you meant it for evil. He says, but 
God meant it for good. What's that mean? It means that all those circumstances were under the governance of God. God brought about Joseph's slavery so that he'd be promoted to the benefit, not just of Joseph, but Joseph's family, in fact, the whole region, benefited by having someone like Joseph there. You meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. God, friends, can be said truly to have delivered Christ, his own son. There was an eternal decree, there was an eternal arrangement made before the world was created. And in that decree, the whole of God's creation would be organised and arranged by God. And chief among the works of God was predestination to eternal life. That is, God drew up, if you like, a, a list of people who would be among the human race. And those people had a special future ahead of them because he not only arranged history to bring them into existence, he arranged historical events to bring them into collision with the gospel. And he changed them and he worked in their hearts and he opened their eyes and caused them to believe on Jesus Christ. It was predestined. Now, we, in Reformed circles, we, we, we sometimes don't like those verses which present the gospel as some kind of a chance for someone to be saved. But it's, it's true, it's there. This is... This is how God has chosen to package the gospel. He's packaged it in such a way to make it plain, to make it easy, to just put the ball in the court, if you like, of the sinner. It's a window of opportunity, and so it allows us to not go out and preach predestination to sinners, but instead to take this uh, much easier message to them. The message being that there's not much time. You don't know when, how long your life's going to be. You need, you need to repent while you're alive. The window of opportunity, if you like, is closing. We use that language. We don't deny predestination. But God has delivered this type of language to us to use with sinful people. To make it very, very clear to them. It's for that, to allow us to proclaim, proclaim liberally that the onus, if you like, is on them to repent for their sin. God has commended Christ to the world and he's also caused him to be delivered up to death. God also raised Christ. We know that God raised him. Now this idea of resurrection, it wasn't alien to Jewish uh, doctrine, but to the Jews, that they, they believed, as we do in the prophecy of Daniel, which says that in the end time there will be a mass resurrection of mankind. There will be this resurrection. Some will be resurrected to eternal life. Some will be resurrected to eternal damnation. And the Jews believed that. But as for Jesus rising, this was premature. 
This couldn't be right because this was before the end. And yet here was the evidence in front of them. Uh, a man was dead. Don't ask me to explain how the Son of God dies, but this it says he died. He was really dead. He wasn't in a coma for three days. He was really dead. Uh, the, the ancients knew better than us how to determine if someone was dead. He was dead. Everyone knew this. But I like to think that maybe the, that the grave itself could not, could not bear to have the Son of God contained in it. it it's as if the grave itself ejected Jesus. You know, this, this can't be the Lord of heaven and earth rotting in the grave. It's impossible. It was not possible that he should, he should remain there. And so it was that God gloriously raised up Jesus, the Son of God, to the amazement of everyone. He was raised from the dead gloriously. And he shows himself, he shows himself to hundreds of people. He, he, Paul says to us, some of those people who saw him are still walking around. Inviting them almost, inviting people to go and speak to, to those witnesses. They're here. Some of them are in this city. You can go and interview them if you want, and they'll tell you that they saw him. Paul says we have witnesses who are still alive. What a joyful occasion it was. He showed himself to hundreds. He also interacted. This was not some vision. This was not a ghost. He interacted with people materially. I mean, he made contact with people and he ate food. This was not a ghost. And in that resurrection of his, what a blow was dealt to the, to the kingdom of Satan. Because up till this point, after Christ was killed, well, I don't know what Satan and the demons knew. I don't know their level of understanding of the scriptures, but I suspect that they still had this hope now that they could finally set up their glorious Antichrist system for all eternity with Satan as the ruler. But this resurrection destroyed that. This resurrection just cancelled that out and voided any possibility that Satan would ever, ever rule any kingdom again. It's interesting too that the, the Bible describes the resurrection also as um, something which justified the saints. It justified them in their claims about who Jesus was. We, uh, as we look at how God ordained uh, every aspect of Christ's life and ministry, we can also see that in our own existence, as I alluded to before, because God was in charge of our birth, where we were born, who our parents would be. This was ordained by God. When we were youngsters, God continued to govern all that we did. 
and most of my most of my youth was just uh, can be described as stupidity. So um, Paul meant it for stupidity, but God meant it for good. Which is why our brother, our late brother Don Former, once said that if I could have my life all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> well, maybe you could, you know, make a few changes. But you see, he was trying to say that although his sin was wrong, he was trying to say that God meant it all for good. His whole life, his whole miserable, sinful existence before he was saved. God ordains all that. God ordains our, our conversion as well, doesn't he? He, he as I say, he brings, he brings us into contact with the gospel and he opens our eyes. A gospel we probably heard many times before and it meant nothing. And then suddenly it means everything and we are attracted to it like a moth to a flame and we are um, just drawn in. And God humbles us and then exalts us. And even after conversion, God continues, even now, even today, God continues to govern our lives of service to him. He governs our service as well. He allows us to share the gospel with people. He allows us to, to, to meet together, like today, to not just hear the Bible read and, and, and preached, but to being here and offering our hearts as a sacrifice of praise to him. He governs this. He governs our death. This is why God has ordained the day of our death. And we have no idea when it will be. It would be nice to think that we live to a certain age and we can make plans, but we can't. This might be the last time you ever see me. It might be. He governs the very hour of our death and the good news is because of that first resurrection of Christ God is going to govern our resurrection to eternal life death followed by resurrection a judgment if you like where we will be declared not guilty a judgment where we will be ushered into eternal life with all the other saints. I'd say that, I'm tempted to say that, uh, oh, I can't wait to die. But that, that doesn't sound quite right. Can't wait to die. That, that's not quite right. Uh, we're to look after ourselves until such a time as all reasonable attempts to care for ourselves fail and we, we drop down dead. And then, uh, at least we, we've done our duty. But certainly what we can say is not, I can't wait to die, but we can say to the Apostle Paul, I want to depart. Not quite the same thing. He didn't want to be dead, did he? He wanted to be alive with Christ. And he, that was his great hope, that he would live again forever with Christ. And that can be our hope. So we don't rush into that. We don't rush into death. And we, we don't... Um, we don't love our lives or love this world so much that we want to uh, avoid that wonderful future either. God governs all our lives. It says here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him, we, believers, 
have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. Friends, this uh, should bring great comfort to you, knowing that God governs your life with the exact same care as he governed the life of his own son. Amen.